Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It is now a tradition to do six impossible episodes a couple of times a year. Uh, full of topics that for whatever reason we can't cover on their own as a standalone episode. Sometimes there's not quite enough information. Sometimes uh, there's something about it that just doesn't lend itself to standalone treatment. Whatever. We are due for one of these. So today we have a set of stories that are all about frontline heroism. Most of them are also requests from listeners. And so we are calling it Six Impossible Episodes, Soldiers, Snipers, and Spies. And first up is the only one of these who was not a listener request, at least not one that we can recall or know of, but it came from a Mental Floss article called Five of the Fiercest One-Liners in History. Milunka Savic was born in Serbia on June 28th of 1888, and in 1912, at the age of 24, she joined the Serbian army. There's a bit of discrepancy about how this came to be, whether she adopted her brother's name to enlist or whether she went with her brother in disguise and they both enlisted together. But regardless, Milunka wound up in the army under the name of her brother, Milun. Savage maintained this disguise and served in both the First and Second Balkan Wars, and by the second she had earned the rank of Corporal in the Iron Regiment. But then, in 1913, she was wounded in the chest at the Battle of Rigolnitschka. And while treating this injury, field, field surgeons discovered her disguise. It's like Shades of Mulan, the cartoon. Yeah. Women were not allowed in the Serbian army in combat roles, but Savic had already been serving honorably for quite some time. So punishing her for it would have been awkward at best. She was offered a transfer to the army's nursing division, but Savage didn't want to be a nurse, and standing at attention, she made it clear that all she wanted to do was to serve her country in combat. The commanding officer told her that he would consider her request, and he would give her an answer in the morning, and Savage, still standing at attention, answered, I will wait. She stood at attention for the next hour until being given permission to go back to the infantry. From there, Savage served for the entirety of World War I, and there's a lot of incredibly dramatic stuff uh, in terms of stories about her valor in battle. But at this point, it's a little hard to establish what's factual and what's legendary. It is clear, though, that she fought bravely with multiple units across more than one Allied military. By the end of her service, she had earned Serbia's highest military honor, the Order of Karajordi Star with Swords. She also received Serbia's gold medal for valor, the French Legion of Honor, grades four and five, the French Croix de Guerre, and multiple other military honors from multiple other nations. She became the most highly decorated woman in all of World War I. After the war, France offered her a military uh, pension, but instead she went back to Belgrade, got married, and had a daughter and adopted three other children. She was named a national hero of Serbia and established a small hospital. And for this hospital work, she actually wound up in a concentration camp for part of World War II. She was eventually released, and she lived until October of 1973. In 2013, the Serbian Armed Forces Military Club opened an exhibition called Milunka Savic, Heroine of the Great War. But even so, there is not a whole lot of information available about her in English. 
I wish there were. <laughs> I found one video that had all of these stories of like battlefield daring do, but I couldn't even figure out what the sources for that video's stories were. Uh, but anyway, she seems amazing. And now we have someone else who served in the Serbian army also in World War I, but in this case was not Serbian. Listeners Laura and Meg have both asked for a podcast on Flora Sands, who after her marriage was Flora Sands Judnich. She was born to an Irish family on January 22nd, 1876, near York, England, and she was the youngest of eight children. She got what was a standard education for her uh, her social class. She was educated by a governess, and she trained to be a secretary. She also learned first aid through the ladies' nursing yeomanry. After the start of World War I, Sands tried to volunteer with the British Armed Forces, but was turned down. So she volunteered with a St. John ambulance unit that had been mustered to work in Serbia, which departed on August 12, 1914. After a difficult and dangerous journey, the last leg of which took place aboard a cattle transport that sailed through a huge thunderstorm, she arrived in Serbia to find a telegram waiting for her, informing her that her father had suddenly died. For the next three months, Sands threw herself into exhausting, difficult work as a nurse. The hospital where she was stationed was short-staffed and low on supplies, and their accommodations were so limited that she and six other nurses had to take turns sleeping on straw mattresses in a single room, with only one blanket shared among them. So she went home. Not to argue for reassignment, but to raise funds for desperately needed supplies for the Serbian troops. She spent six weeks doing this and raised 2,000 pounds, then made the, then made the trip back to Serbia with 120 tons of supplies. For a time, she continued her work in hospitals, learning on the job and performing everything from minor surgical procedures to administrative work. And her work was important from the start, but it became especially critical in February of 1915, when a typhus epidemic claimed as many as 200 victims a day, including hospital staff. It was so bad that by the time it was over, there were only one doctor, an orderly, and some nurses left at Sands Hospital. Sands returned to England again for a time in 1915, but when the war escalated again in Serbia, she went back. She intended to go back to the hospital where she had been working previously. But once she arrived, that proved to be impossible. It was just too dangerous, and there wasn't any kind of unit or convoy going that direction that she could travel with. So instead, she began working as a Red Cross ambulance driver alongside the Iron Regiment. When Serbia was invaded in October 1915, the Serbian army was forced into a long retreat through Albania over incredibly difficult terrain and in desperately cold weather. And San's service during this retreat was so dedicated that the unit's commanding officer, Colonel Milic, allowed her to officially enlist, at which point she took on a combat role, and she was at this time 39 years old. This seems like a discrepancy between Maluka Savage's story and Flora Sands' story in terms of how easy it was for them to become uh, actually enlisted in the military. I don't know the reason for that, other than the fact that this happened a few years later and the circumstances were a lot more dire in terms of the war. But if you have knowledge, feel free to sh- drop us a note. Regardless, though, Sands spent the next six years with the Serbian army, ultimately attaining the rank of captain. Initially, the other soldiers in her unit called her Our English Woman, but eventually they started addressing her with the same word that they used for each other, which translated to brother. 
Even when Sands was at home on leave or recovering after being wounded, which she was twice, she still tirelessly worked to support the Serbian cause. She raised funds, she rallied support, and she gathered supplies. She wrote an autobiography titled An Englishwoman Sergeant in the Serbian Army, specifically to try to raise Serbian support among the British. And when an injury prevented her from returning to the front, she went back to working at a hospital. Like Milunka Savic, she was also awarded the Order of Karajordi's Star. Sands married Yuri Volodymych Yudnich on May 14, 1927, and they moved to Belgrade. They both retired from the service, but she was really not good at living the in the quiet life. She tried her hand at a lot of different projects before she and her husband were called up for service again in World War II. They were soon captured by the Germans and imprisoned, and they were eventually released, although her husband died in 1941. At that point, she went back to England, where she died on November 24th of 1956. Before we get to two more stories, we'll have a quick sponsor break. Our next story is from World War II, and it was requested by Jack, Kate, Pavel, Molly, Amber, and surely many, many others. Uh, Ludmila Pavlichenko was born in Belaya Tsurkov, Ukraine, not far from Kiev, in 1916. In her youth, she joined the Volunteer Society for the Assistance of Army, Aircraft, and Fleet. This was an organization that combined patriotism, athletics, and some paramilitary training. And in spite of the term volunteer, it was one of those things where participation was basically expected of all youth. And it was here that Pavlichenko started learning to shoot. She earned a certificate in marksmanship and a badge in sharpshooting. And when she enrolled at Kiev University in 1937, she joined the track team and also went to a sniper's school to further develop her skill. When Germany invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, Pavlichenko decided to put her training to use and tried to join the army. She was at first turned down because she was a woman, even after she showed them her certificate and badge. And in what's become a running theme on this episode, she was encouraged to become a nurse instead. Pavlichenko persisted, though, and she was finally accepted into the Red Army's 25th Chapayev Rifle Division after passing an impromptu test. She was basically with a unit that was defending a hill, and someone pointed out two Romanians who were working with the Germans and told her to shoot them, which she did. Pavlichenko became an exceptionally skilled and feared military sniper. In her first 75 days of service, she had 187 confirmed kills. By the end of her service, that number had risen to 309. 36 of those were German snipers, some in what were effectively duels with the enemy. From her point of view, especially when it came to the snipers, the work she was doing was ultimately saving many other lives. Her reputation really spread among the German military, which knew her by name. They started playing announcements over loudspeakers in places where they thought that she was, trying to get her to defect. They were basically like, Yudmila, come over here, we have chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Over the course of her career, she was wounded in combat four times, including being hit with shrapnel in the face. 
She also became the face of some of the Red Army's propaganda. In addition to her skill as a marksman and sharpshooter, she was also very attractive. And while trying to join the army in the first place, people had commented on her well-styled hair and beautifully manicured nails, as well as making sexist remarks about whether she should even be in the army in the first place. Uh, and that line of questioning did not stop even after she had distinguished herself in the army. In 1942, at the age of 25, Pavlichenko became the first Soviet soldier to visit the White House as part of an effort to get the United States to support Soviet war efforts on the European continent. It was during this tour that she became friends with the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. But the media coverage of this visit and tour really focused relentlessly on her appearance and what she was wearing, which often was literally her uniform. Reporters frequently criticized it for not being very stylish or flattering to her figure. I know you're an amazing sharpshooter, but can we talk about your outfit? That was really the subtext. (laughs) A lot. She eventually stopped. She stopped playing nicely. She was like, would you ask that of a man? Once Pavlichenko returned home, she was promoted to major, was named Hero of the Soviet Union, and eventually was put on a postage stamp. When the war was over, she finished her education and she became a historian. In 1957, she reconnected with Eleanor Roosevelt in what was an emotional reunion, which is covered beautifully in the Rejected Princess entry on her. We will link to that in the show notes for real. It does, especially this part of the story... Uh, A lot of beautiful justice, far more than we did just now. After three stories about people who uh, were offered jobs in nursing rather than combat or went into combat after nursing, we wanted to make sure we also talked about someone who was a nurse through and through, and that's Lieutenant Colonel Vivian Bullwinkle, also known as Bully. Uh, This one is a tearjerker, and the listener request we got for it was actually about a massacre that she survived. Vivian Bullwinkle was born in South Australia on December 18th, 1915. She was trained as a nurse and midwife and was working at Jesse McPherson Hospital in Melbourne at the start of World War II. At that point, she joined the Australian Army Nursing Service. She was assigned to the 13th Australian General Hospital, or 13th AGH, although she also spent a few weeks with the 10th AGH. She was ultimately stationed in what's now Malaysia. In late 1941, Japanese forces started moving down the Malay Peninsula. And at the start of 1942, the 13th AGH was forced to evacuate across the Straits of Johor to Singapore. Soon, Japanese forces moved on Singapore as well, forcing a second retreat aboard the SS Viner Brook on February 12, 1942. Bullwinkle was among the last group of nurses evacuated, along with a group of women and children, as well as injured soldiers. On February 13th, a Japanese bomber spotted the Viner Brook and attacked. The ship sank, and some of the survivors came aboard on Banka Island off the coast of Sumatra, where they gathered on Raji Beach. At first, their group was made up of 22 nurses, including Bullwinkle, along with some women and children, and about a 100 British soldiers joined them on the beach the following day. Eventually, the group decided that their best course of action was to surrender to the Japanese. The civilian women and children left to find someone to whom they might surrender. The nurses and soldiers, including the wounded men, stayed behind. But when the Japanese soldiers eventually did arrive at the beach on February 16th, they did not accept any surrender. They divided the soldiers into two groups, shot them, and bayoneted the survivors. 
Then they directed the nurses to march into the sea. As they did, their matron, Irene Drummond, told them, Chin up, girls. I'm proud of you, and I love you all. Then the Japanese soldiers opened fire, and they machine-gunned them all to death from behind. Vivian Bullwinkle shot in the abdomen, played dead in the water until she washed ashore, which point the Japanese soldiers had gone. She found a surviving soldier, Private Kingsley, and the two of them hid in the jungle. Bullwinkle tended to both of their wounds and sneaked to a nearby village to beg for food for them, putting her life at risk every time she did. Soon, though, it became clear that they could not survive long-term in this way, and she and Kingsley decided to once again try to surrender. And this time, they did successfully surrender, although Kingsley died shortly afterward as a result of his injuries. Bullwinkle was taken to a prisoner-of-war camp in Sumatra, where she was reunited with the survivors of the sinking of the Viner Brook, who had not come ashore at that beach. She told them what had happened and how she had survived, but from there they all kept it secret. It was obvious that her life would be in serious danger if her captors learned that she had witnessed the Banka Island massacre. Bullwinkle and the other survivors of the Viner Brook were all kept as prisoners of war for more than three years. And that whole time, Bullwinkle continued her work as a nurse, keeping both herself and many of her fellow POWs alive. And in 1946, once the war was over, Bullwinkle testified before the War Crimes Tribunal in Tokyo as to what had happened. She also contacted the families of the nurses that had been on that beach with her to tell them about their loved one's last moments and final words. She retired from the Army in 1947 and returned to civilian life as a nurse. She eventually became director of nursing at Melbourne's Fairfield Hospital, and she spent time raising funds for a nursing memorial and a memorial to those who were killed on Banka Island. She was awarded the Royal Red Cross for exceptional services, devotion to duty, and professional competence in British military nursing. Her uniform, complete with a bullet hole, is part of the collection at the Australian War Memorial. In 1977, she married, becoming Vivian Bullwinkle Statham, and she died on July 3rd, 2000. We're going to take one more quick break before we have two more stories. Our next request actually comes from author Mary Robinette Cole. Uh, When we did our live show at C2E2 in 2016, I stopped by her booth to say hello because I love her books. And she suggested that we look into it. And then she followed up uh, on the Jonathan Colton cruise in 2017, which uh, she was one of the entertainers on and I went on vacation on. So we are hopping back to World War One again for the first Russian women's battalion of death. Individual women were involved in the Russian military, both officially and unofficially from the very beginning of Russian involvement in World War One. So many women had expressed an interest in serving that on June 10th of 1915, an official policy was handed down that women could join the army on a case-by-case basis as long as each case was approved by Tsar Nicholas II. All of that changed following the February Revolution, which began in March 1917 on the Gregorian calendar, but in February on the Julian calendar. The February Revolution was the product of both food shortages and Russia's involvement in World War I, which had been just devastating in terms of both the Russian economy and the cost of human life. 
The February Revolution began with food riots and strikes and ultimately ended with the forced abdication of the Tsar, who would later be executed. The provisional government that followed the end of the Tsarist rule granted women a number of rights, including the right to vote and to serve on juries. The provisional government was also far more open to the idea of women in military service, especially given a dire need for new recruits, and the fact that the revolution itself had really disrupted the Russian military. The first Russian women's battalion of death was the work of Maria Bochkareva, also known by the nickname Yashka. She was one of the many women who had individually petitioned to join the Russian army in 1915 and had ultimately been allowed to join. She had already been wounded and recovered twice and had been awarded the St. George's Cross for Valor when the February Revolution began. About two months after the February Revolution, she conceived of forming a unit of about 300 women who would, quote, serve as an example to the army and lead the men into battle. These women would be highly trained and extraordinarily disciplined, and they would follow the same protocol as other Russian battalions of death, which was a formal designation within the military. These all-volunteer battalions swore to fight to the death and were marked with special red and black chevrons on their sleeves and skulls and crossbones on their banners. Boshkareva began recruiting on May 21st, 1917, and she got 2,000 responses almost immediately. Following her example, other women began seeking approval to recruit for additional women's units uh, all around Russia. The first Russian women's battalion of death ultimately had 300 members, but at least 4,000 women joined the Russian military in other women's units in World War I. On June 21st, in uniform and with close-cropped hair, the newly formed 1st Russian Women's Battalion of Death marched through Petrograd in front of a cheering crowd, where they were given gifts from the 1st and 3rd Russian armies, as well as a banner from the Minister of War. Part of their route was to the graves of protesters who had been killed during the February Revolution. At this point, the 1st Russian Women's Battalion of Death seems like it's on track for a similar story arc to World War II's Night Witches. Uh, the Night Witches were founded, along with two other all-female regiments, by Marina Raskova. The Night Witches went on to become household names in the Soviet Union, and they spent most of World War II harassing and terrifying the German army. We have an episode about them in the archive. But that wasn't the case. When the 1st Women's Battalion of Death arrived at the Western Front, they faced derision and harassment from the men in the 10th Army that were already stationed there. The Women's Battalion was part of the Kerensky Offensive, and they did exactly what they'd intended to do. They charged into the fray, essentially shaming reluctant male soldiers into following. They also reportedly found and destroyed a large stash of vodka in the Austro-German trenches before the other Russian soldiers could get to it. Uh, that influence, which was part of the point from the beginning, didn't last, though. The Kerensky offensive was ultimately unsuccessful, and as the tide turned against the Russian army, the Women's Battalion of Death wanted to keep fighting, as had been their mission from the beginning. But their determination really started to inspire resentment instead of valor from the male soldiers already there. By July 3rd, the offensive had dissolved completely, and Bochkareva herself was attacked and beaten by a mob that demanded that the women stop fighting. Not long after, General Lavr Kornilov replaced General Brusilov, and a second set of demonstrations known as the July Days rose up in Petrograd. 
Many of the July days, demonstrators were soldiers, and Kornilov deployed the military to try to suppress the uprising. Because Bachkareva knew Kornilov, she and the rest of her battalion suffered guilt by association, and they were branded as counter-revolutionaries. They faced so much violent hostility from the rest of the force that they were moved out of combat. Kornilov, who had not shown Brusilov's approval of women's battalions in the first place, then stopped accepting new female recruits and started the process of dissolving the women's battalions. By this point, Russia was facing catastrophic economic and human losses from the war and an uprising from within in the form of the Russian Revolution. When demobilization of the military began on November 10th, 1917, there was almost nothing in the way of support for returning soldiers. Records from this period are so spotty that the ultimate fate of most of the first women's battalion of death is unknown. Regardless, what had initially seemed like a bold attempt to democratize and bring gender equality to Russia's military ultimately fell apart. Bachkareva herself traveled to the United States in 1918 and dictated a memoir while she was there. She also met with President Woodrow Wilson, where she pleaded for American assistance in Russia. She later went to London, where she did the same thing before George V. She was apparently invited to join the White Army during the Russian Civil War. This led to her being captured by the Bolsheviks and executed by firing squad on May 16, 1920. Now we were... You're going on to our last story, which we are going to end with a spy, which is a spy lots of folks have asked for, but most of the requests came by a people sharing her obituary to our Facebook wall or tweeting us a link to it, so we don't have a list of names. It's much easier for us to find episode requests in our email than on our social e- media most of the time. Stephanie Czech Raider was born Stephanie Czech on May 16, 1915. She grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York. Her parents had immigrated from Poland, and they didn't speak much English, so she learned Polish at home and actually didn't begin to learn English until she started school. But she eventually became fluent in both languages. In high school, one of her teachers submitted an application to Cornell University on her behalf, and she was awarded a full scholarship to go there. She graduated with a master's degree in chemistry in 1937, and she later got a job as a translator. When the United States entered World War II, she joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. But within a couple of years, she had caught the attention of the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS. This was an intelligence office and a precursor to the CIA. In 1945, she was stationed in Poland, ostensibly to work as a clerk at the U.S. Embassy. But in reality, she was a spy. She did most of her work in plain clothes and unarmed. She would later say, quote, They gave me a gun, but I never carried a gun. What the heck was I going to do with a dumb gun? (laughs) Under the pretense of finding members of her family, she traveled extensively away from Warsaw alone, gathering huge amounts of information about Soviet troop movements and social conditions and passing all of that information back to the OSS. She also started to work as a courier carrying secret information, and this was a particularly risky assignment, since if she were caught, she would probably just disappear. Some of her male colleagues, in fact, were caught and just disappeared during this period. 
She was very nearly apprehended on January 15, 1946. She was leaving the embassy in Berlin, and she was given a set of documents to take with her back to Warsaw. She really didn't want to do this because she had been under an increasing level of scrutiny. She suspected that authorities were going to try to take any opportunity to arrest her. Some of her colleagues at the OSS, as we said, had simply vanished at this point during their service in Poland. As she approached a border checkpoint, she realized that Soviet police were there waiting to arrest her. So she took a really risky move of passing the documents off to a civilian with instructions on where to deliver them. So she did not have those documents on her when she was questioned. While she was still serving in Poland, her cover was actually blown by the careless behavior of a superior officer who was stationed in Paris. Even though her cover was blown, she insisted on staying in Poland, even though she was at much greater risk, until she had finished her assignment. Finally, back in the United States, she married Brigadier General William Rader and eventually retired from the Army. She attained the rank of captain, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has called her one of the most successful intelligence agents of post-World War II Poland. She died on January 21st, 2016, at the age of 100, and she was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. She was posthumously awarded the Legion of Merit in 2016 as well. That was something she had been recommended for all the way back in 1946 and denied, possibly because at the time there were so few women working as covert agents for the United States. And those are our soldiers, snipers, and spies for our six impossible episodes today. What's up with listener mail, Tracy? I have some listener mail from Jenny. It is called Kentucky Colonels, and it is following our episode about the Kentucky Derby. Uh, I am going to skip some particularly fond introduction, uh, because she's so kind. It feels a little self-congratulatory to read it. Uh, and then continues, I just finished the episode on the Kentucky Derby and had to write in. You giggled when you mentioned that habit of the state of Kentucky to call people colonels when they held no actual military role. This reaction is shared by much of the world outside of Kentucky, and it's one that I found myself laughing at, too, when I first heard about it. Being born and raised in New Hampshire, I often felt like I'd moved to another planet when I moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, to teach. Once there, I learned more about this proud tradition from students and colleagues and thought I'd share a bit with you. The title of colonel can be bestowed upon anyone in recognition of their accomplishments or works serving their community, state, nation, or the world. New colonels are nominated by active colonels and can be national heroes like astronaut John Glenn, writers like Hunter S. Thompson and Duncan Hines, artists and entertainers like Ansel Adams, Johnny Depp, Ashley Judd, and Betty White. I'm just going to pause for a second and say I love that Betty White is a Kentucky colonel. (laughs) (laughs) To return to the letter, athletes like Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe, world leaders and foreign royalty like Winston Churchill or Princess Anne, and, of course, businessmen like KFC's own Colonel Sanders. They can also be private citizens from all works of life working to better the lives of people of Kentucky. The title is bestowed by the governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky by issuing letters patent and has been around since the American Revolution. They even have their own toast written in 1936 that I thought you'd both love. Our show has run a little long today, so I'm not going to read this entire toast, but we are going to put it in the show notes so you can go to our website and read it. Uh, and then uh, Je- Jenny says that in 2015, a dear friend of hers became a Kentucky colonel, um, which is a lovely story. So thank you so much 
for uh, for all of that information, Jenny. That is indeed lovely. Thank you for not being one of the folks who assumed we had literally never heard of Colonel Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) We got a number of emails assuming we had never heard of Colonel Sanders, but uh, we don't live under rocks. So (laughs) I do. I'm like Patrick the Starfish. (laughs) But we've definitely heard of Colonel Sanders. (laughs) Um, So... If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest and Instagram, both at history. You can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com to find information about just about anything your heart desires. And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com where you can find show notes, including where we will put that toast for the Kentucky Colonels. Uh, archive of every single episode we've ever done, other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissingHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 